It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Dishes and Dimes brought to you by Basketball News. My name is Iman, and I am joined by Kevin O'Connor of The Ringer. Kevo! In my, <laughs> my half-assed Chris Vernon impression. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing great, Iman. Thank you for having me on today. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. We've come to the end of another regular season. Basketball in the NBA, at the very least, is over until next year. We've got the draft to focus in on, but I don't really want to talk about the draft. I want to focus in on the season that just was and really take a look at the finals that just was. The Golden State Warriors, were they your pick heading into the season? I uh, had Warriors nets before the season. And throughout the year, I, I kind of wavered on the Warriors as they, ha- as they had their ups and downs. I was like, well, what about the Suns? What about, you know, this team? What about that team? And I, I, I think at the beginning of the postseason, I, I went back to the Warriors uh, as the uh, pick in the West. Um, but even then, like the, the ups and downs during the postseason, I should have just stuck with them from the start. And I would have felt uh, very smart. But like the truth is, is like nuance is a necessary like when you're now analyzing the game and rightfully so that they had moments where you kind of lost belief in them or or their belief wavered. But here we are. They're champions once again. They are. I mean, it's it's one of the, one of those points that like it's kind of hard to bet on a team when their core three, at least the guys that we think of when we think of Golden State Warriors, played eleven total minutes in the regular season together. Like that's it. they played more minutes in the playoffs in each series, <laughs> in each game than they did in the entire regular season, which is kind of wild to think about. No, no doubt about it. Like the, this team, they never felt totally whole, even when Clay first came back in January. Draymond gets hurt that same day and like he's just out there for the opening tip and that's it and it's a back injury and back injuries are scary those limit you you don't know how a a player will return from that and I don't know it's it's just so wild like all those guys that were in and out of the lineup you know Clay Draymond and then Looney's the guy who plays all 82 and it's really the 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 not the unsung hero like Warriors fans know how important he is like he's one of the heroes of the team but for like when we look back at the this Warriors championship team 10 years from now or even 25 years from now Looney's going to be one of those guys where like the people who saw these games would know how important he was throughout the whole year for them uh, but looking back like just to the numbers I, I feel I hope he's not forgotten for his efforts but it's just a cool story that they were able to actually do it again it's amazing. It really was. I wrote a story at the beginning of the year about um, small ball kind of disappearing in favor of long ball. And then the team that you think of when you think of small ball comes through and it's the Golden State Warriors. But you just mentioned it. Kavon Looney, the unsung hero, a guy they could not have gotten it done without. Robert Williams, I think, is one of the unsung heroes for the gold for the Boston Celtics. Although injured and, and, you know, we didn't get to see him at full strength. It would be really fun to watch what the Celtics could do. Um Moving forward, we'll, we'll get into we'll get into sort of looking ahead at what the Celtics and what the Warriors can do. But before that, I want to talk a little bit about the Celtics defense. But I don't want to get into ranking it and how great the defense is. Really, I want to talk about some defensive trade-off. What we saw with this Celtics team is that they preferred to let the superstar of the team sort of go off and try to limit everyone else around. And for the Celtics, that resulted in they were one in six when guys scored 40 or more against them. Now, I want to ask you, as a defensive principal, what are your thoughts on that 
trade off specifically letting a guy who is arguably the best player in a series. So not just the best player on the opposing team, but arguably the best player in a series get off against you, considering, yeah, the Celtics did make it to the finals, but it was their Achilles heel letting that guy go off. And do you think that defensive principal Baime Udoka had more to do with the fact that, yes, the Celtics are a great team defense, but they don't necessarily have that one guy that you can throw on a Giannis or throw on a Jimmy to neutralize them? What are your thoughts on something like that? I mean, it's like Steph Curry is is a singular problem and like it's it's like no matter what you do you're giving something away and i thought it was really interesting i mean like boston starts the series off and they're pretty much dropping in pick and roll on everything giving stephen curry one of the greatest shooters the the greatest shooter in in the history of basketball uh it's space to pull up to shoot his jump shots and 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 it's just it's mind-blowing in some ways that that's what you choose to do However, if you blitz or show in the pick and roll, applying pressure to try to get the ball out of his hands, to your point, that opens up opportunities for, you know, Draymond Green or Kevon Looney on the short roll. Uh, Andre Iguodala becomes finals MVP. (laughs) And then they're just picking apart the defense, finding the open man for wide open corner three point shooters. If you switch the screens, you know, Stephen Curry going back to the Warriors first uh, finals in 2015. That's the one. Like they, he, he's the, he's the most efficient isolation score over this eight year span. Not, not James Harden, not LeBron James, not Kevin Durant, it's Stephen Curry. So if you're switching screens, he presents that issue. If you're dropping and he presents that issue, if you're blitzing, he presents that issue. And so really like what, what worked best is when Nick nurse went with the box and one, <laughs> except like you were able to use the box of one. Cause <laughs> like that team was limited <laughs> at the time. Like they had no depth. They didn't have the, the depth that they have now. It's like Sean Livingston was playing, you know, m- many minutes per game. Quinn cook was out there. Alfonso McKinney was out there. I, I mean, DeMarcus cousins, DeMarcus cousins was playing heavy minutes for the Warriors. I mean, that's that's like, that doesn't take anything away from obviously Toronto winning the championship. Obviously it doesn't, but like, it's just the situation allowed for that type of extreme defense then. And that goes to show like, that's what you got to do to slow down stuff. There's nothing else you can do. And so in that sense, I come away feeling, you know, Boston, that trade-off you mentioned they, they were an amazing defense all year long. Amazing. And even how as amazing as they were, even they didn't have answers for Steph and Curry. Like to me, right. that, that just speaks to Steph's greatness above anything else. Like that's just my, my personal feelings there. Like, do you, what do you think about that? Like, you know, knowing like what has worked against Steph and what hasn't. I, I, yeah, I don't know that. I mean, that's how Steph kind of burns you is that there's really nothing that you can do to limit Stephen Curry unless, of course, yes, he's playing with Quinn Cook and Alfonso <laughs> McKinney. And, <laughs> like, um, uh, it, there, there's really nothing you can do the trade off. And I wrote a piece on Stephen Curry. We can talk about it a little bit. I wrote a piece just before um, around game three about the finals MVP because everybody was talking about Steph never won a finals MVP. My argument was that Steph has been the most important player in the most important series. He was that in 2015. We can go back and forth on whether you think he was that in 2018 um, and, and different things like that. I think there's an argument to be made, but Kevin Durant is Kevin Durant. But the reason why Andre Gudala won it is because a lot of the value that Steph brings doesn't necessarily have to be on ball. A lot of it is off ball. He is, you know, to say he's the greatest shooter I put in is true. He is a greatest shooter, but it kind of reduces what he does, right? He is also one of the greatest ball handlers I've ever seen. He's also an incredible finisher. He can finish with both hands. He can just do everything on ball. And for as great as he is on ball, he might be even better off ball. <laughs> like Just to watch the way that he moves and to watch the way that defenses have to sort of guard him in it and allowed for Andre Iguodala to be open. I was looking through the numbers, the amount of open shots that Andre Iguodala had that were considered wide open by NBA.com and the amount of sort of catch and shoot looks he had he had. He didn't really have to create for himself off the dribble. And all of that comes from Stephen Curry. It was looking back at that, that was probably the best way that a defense could guard Stephen Curry in that it just forced other guys to go off. And yes, Andre Iguodala did burn you. And that's what the Cavs had to live with. And that's the reason why they lost that series. But like, that's the only way that you can guard <laughs> Stephen Curry is to just be like, make your teammates beat us. 
And more often than not, the Warriors have been able to do that because they have Clay, because they have Draymond, and because, you know, they, they haven't been the deepest team in years, but they've had guys who can come off the bench and, and beat you. Totally. I, I think you're 100% right about that. And, um, you know, I'm glad you mentioned, like, he's not, people talk about him as the GOAT shooter, but he is such an unbelievable finisher at the rim and off screens. Like, I've met, uh, the, the, the play, there's this play that sticks in my mind. I don't even remember which game it was. I think it was like game four game five where Steph, you know, he was, he got pressured in the pick and roll and he had yeah. to get the ball out of his hands. And then he did his thing where he relocates cuts towards the basket and then springs back behind the arc. And, and I, I think it was white or Pritchard who was defending him. And they like, just for a split second, just for a split second, were behind on the play and Steph didn't get the shot off though. Cause they caught up, yeah. but then he cut to the rim and drew I a foul. It's like you constantly, it felt like for a moment it was over. Whoa, he's at the behind the line and then, Oh, he gave the ball up, but then he's at the rim and he's drawing a foul. And it's just, you can't lose sight of this guy. I just can't imagine what it's like to be on the court, having to be mentally locked in literally 100% of the time. Like there's not a moment that you can relax on defense when you're finning Stephen Curry and, I don't know. Like it's just, it's a, it's a real pleasure to watch a guy like that move around off ball because I think, you know, a lot of the time I mention Trey young, like Trey young, I'd love yeah. to see him embrace his inner Steph, uh, but he doesn't, he, he kind of like embraces his inner Harden when he's his off inner Harden. Yeah. yeah. And like, and, you know, even Damian Lord, as amazing as he is, you know, with the blazers, he doesn't move off ball the way Stephen Curry does. And not to mention Stephen Curry is a way better defensive player than either of those guys who kind of fit into that same mold. And he was unbelievable on defense throughout the postseason for the Warriors with teams attacking him over and over and over again. Don't it, attack it's Steph. Amazing. It's not the mismatch you think it is, nope. guys. It's not. <laughs> it's not. And yet, and yet, like he's I remember I interviewed him years ago. Uh, I think it was 2018-19 season, the year they lost to Toronto. And, the greatest and, year ever. Yeah, yeah, the greatest year ever. Yes, before the world changed. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, Steph said to me, he's like, I understand why teams attack me because I look around, you know, the lineup, the guys that I'm sharing the floor, floor with, I'm often the smallest. So naturally, I'm going to get picked on. And, and I think he knew that. And I think he does still know that. And that's why he's continued to get better on defense, despite the fact he was already at the time a three time champion, despite the fact he was already one of the greatest players of all time, a two time MVP. He was never complacent and he kept getting better. I don't know. I just I'm impressed by a guy like that. who keeps getting better despite past success. Honestly, as, as you're sort of speaking, I was thinking about something and I haven't really had a chance to really flush this thought out. So bear with me as I try to articulate this. So in game six, when this, the Warriors were coming, and is it still a sore spot? Is talking about this. I, kn I know that you, you allowed yourself to be a Celtics fan this year. Personal reasons, sentimental reasons. Does it kind of burn you a little bit losing that? No. Do you feel a little bit of the pain? No? No. I mean, it was just really numbness. <laughs> just, I, I didn't, I didn't, I don't know. It's a, it's a strange feeling watching the Celtics. Um, but, okay. Uh, I, I don't, um, I didn't feel sad after the game. I, I just felt kind of joy to be there more than anything else, which was a great feeling, you know, just yeah. to, like, I kind of like, I don't know if I had the right press pass to be on the court for the celebration, but I walked in the court anyway. And <laughs> so was, NBA security, fake yeah, play, yeah. Kevin O'Connor. <laughs> yeah. I was just, uh, I was snapping pictures, taking videos. And <laughs> I just felt, I always said, um, like when I first got into sports media, like in 2013, I always yeah. said, if I'm ever at a, at a finals game in Boston, I'm going to get on the court afterwards. I got on the court. So <laughs> there we go. Fulfilling lifelong dreams. I love it. Yeah, it was cool. So, so this thought I had, and this is game six. The Warriors are going on the run in the first quarter, that 21 0 run. And looking at the guys who were on the court, it was a lot of their defensive guys. It was Gary Payton. It was uh, Kevon Looney. It was Draymond Green. It was the guys that you think of. And the trade-off, so, okay, just thinking back to trade-offs, and I'm going to struggle to, to, to articulate this, guys, bear with me, but how much Steve Kerr is a thought process there where you're struggling to find offense and you're looking to get anything going in the first quarter, putting in three guys, knowing that the Celtics have the best, one of the best defenses that we've seen, um, knowing how great the Celtics defense is, putting in three guys who are great defenders because your offense is just getting stops anyway. The Celtics can only stop you in the half court. And so part of, yes, the Celtics are great half court defense. If they get you in half court sets, you're going to struggle to score. And we see that with, this, with the Warriors numbers in the half court. But in transition, they really 
struggle to stop the Warriors. That's how the Warriors won this game. It was a possession battle and the Warriors won it out in transition. So is that really the trade-off there? And as I'm saying it, yes, is the answer that I'm coming up with in my head as I'm working through this. But is that kind of the trade-off that, that Kerr is making there, which is like, I'm not going to beat them by playing all of my shooters here. It's just not going to work. So let me go get stops. And that's what's going to feed my offense. I think so. A couple, maybe about a month ago, I I had a conversation with one of my friends who works in the league and he said something like almost so close to you where he's like, he he kind of just said it like you're you're, what teams are doing. Like we were talking about the fast starts, right? Like these teams that are getting up to 15 point leads early in games. And he's like, because the team that is getting stops has such a, like a statistical advantage when they're getting either early offense, cross matches, transition opportunities that they're increasing their probability of scoring on offense. And therefore they're, they're they're increasing their probability of being in a half court defense, therefore increasing the probability that they get the stop. It's just a cycle and it feels like common sense, but because of the way the game is played now with three point shooting and the pace, I think that's even more extreme to the point that you're making. And so maybe for the Warriors, that was kind of the equation they were going through and in their mind, well, we need to get stops in order to generate transition opportunities, early offense, cross matches, whatever it may be. And right. that, that's what works, right? Like that's what works. So I think, I think you're onto something there. Um, I mean, it's, it feels like, like, of course you want to get stops, but because of the way these teams play, it's like even more extreme than it was in past years in basketball history. Right. It's also my argument for DeMar DeRozan being a great defender. Uh, he shoots free throws, stops the, stops time, <laughs> yeah. allows his team to set up. There you go. That's his contribution matter. on defense. It really does. It, it really it, does. It, it, all, it all, like, I remember, like, even on defense, people don't talk about his rebounding as defense. Yeah. Like, rebounding is almost like a separate category, but, but rebounding is the punctuation at the end of the sentence. It stops the possession and jump start and starts the new sentence, your offensive possession. I mean, right. it's all part of there it. There are a few teams that terrify me more, and this is like at the height of, of Warriors-ness, although we could probably say that hasn't ended. When they get an offensive board and you're just like, ah, like, okay, so now so now I'm going down three. Like, it, it's going to be a three. I don't even need <laughs> yeah. to look up. I just know it's going to happen. Yeah, it's true. Uh, Boardman gets paid in the words of <laughs> Kawhi Leonard. Can't wait for Andrew line. Wiggins to get that paycheck. <laughs> Can't wait for Andrew Wiggins to get that paycheck. <laughs> So something else that's kind of been talked about in this playoffs is we talked about Steph. We talked about Celtics defense. The other thing is Tatum struggles. And really, whether or not Tatum is a primary guy or or secondary guy, and, and there's always the qualifier that he's only 24 years old and what he is today is not what we expect him to be in his prime. He's still incredibly young and growing. And I, I think my question more so is, What do you, because we saw Tatum at certain moments really be incredibly hot and and look great, but we also saw Tatum struggle. And I remember after game one of the finals, a lot of the conversation was like, all right, so Tatum got his one game out, you know, that that one game where he's going to go four for 17. And it kind of feels like there've been a couple of those in every single series. And so this is a two-part question. The first one is, what to you is sort of the quantitative or even the qualitative difference between a primary and a secondary guy? For a team, and what does Tatum need to add to really solidify himself in that upper tier as that primary guy, as opposed to the Paul George, more so the Kawhi Leonard than the Paul George? I think the difference, you know, between you know, especially Kawhi and George, is the ability to to draw contact at the rim and get to the free throw line, finish through contact, and and also just you know. Uh, I think for Tatum, it's that, but it's also he needs to become more efficient as a mid-range shooter, especially out of isolations. It's, I mean, he kind of uh, is billed as that. You know, he's a guy who grew up loving Kobe Bryant. He's not shy about that. He fits into that, you know, George, you know, type of mold that you're talking about. But he's never been like elite efficiency out of isolations. And I think for him, that's one of the next steps, you know, is getting better from pull-ups on mid-range and also getting better at drawing contact around the basket. And I know with him, um, like there was an adjustment made mid-series with his trainer, Drew Hanlon, where it was like the angles he was attacking off the dribble to in order to have attack in more of a straight line to get to the basket. It didn't necessarily work. Um, so I think for him, are we? Or the question is going to be at his age, he's 24. 
are we seeing some of the limits to his game where there's like mm-hmm. a, a ceiling that he's reached or are we seeing a guy that's still in progress in his development and will continue to reach a higher level? How much of that also is the NBA rewarding? You know, you're a star. You've been anointed. You now get the whistle, right? Like how much of it is Which that too early, right? People do too early. It could be that. I, I don't know. It's all these variables that I'm not so sure about. Um, but I think with him, like I know, th- I know the one thing with Jason Tatum is that dude is going to work the hardest that he possibly can. He is not the type of player. Like we mentioned Steph earlier, the lack of complacency after all the success Tatum is also, you know, wired like that in the sense that whatever he's going to become, he's going to become the best version of that, right? So the best version of himself. So maybe he only reaches a Paul George level, but you know, he's only 24 years old. I think the next three, four years where he's really going to reveal a lot about the level that he can reach as a player, but Boston's on the clock. He's really good. And Paul, Paul George, George is also awesome. really awesome. good. And so is Tatum. Tatum, <laughs> yeah. Tatum was amazing throughout the postseason. Like the, they, he had some unbelievable games where he showed that he can be the guy in the biggest moments. So I yeah. think with Tatum, I look at, I tweeted about this that night after the game. I was like, let's be honest. He looks more like a number two than a number one. And naturally a lot of Celtics fans saw that. Like you're an idiot. Like you're for your recency bias. It's like, no, 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 no. What I'm saying is that, like he looked like a two against the warriors, the champions, yeah. but he looked like a one for the most part against everybody else. And so I, I view this as a big step forward for Jason Tatum. His playmaking was better, still very yeah. good defensively. He filled the box score in other ways. So, I mean, I think for Celtics fans, they should feel very, very optimistic about Tatum, but you know, only time is going to really tell like what level he's actually going to reach. I think a lot of what we're talking about here, just in terms of like, I mentioned it, we talked about this a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago on this pod here, Yasmin, Sandy and I, about just Tatum really needing to diversify his offense a little bit because there's only like, in in my opinion, as an ISO scorer operating out out the mid range, like just there's, there's a limit to how efficient you can be because of the degree of difficulty to that shot regardless. And so like, Yes, drawing contact, getting to the free throw line. It was stark how few times he shot free throws in the finals. Like as someone who's so incredibly long, like just athletic enough. Is it his handle that needs to be tighter? Because he did drive a lot. I was looking at the numbers and I was kind of surprised when I saw them. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, he had a driving kick game going a little bit. I think it was like 15.4 drives that he averaged in this Warrior series, which is higher than at any other point in his career. So we're seeing that grow up. He had his career high in assists. We're seeing different parts of his game really sort of elevate, but it's like diversifying his offense would be the number one thing because the Celtics offense just looks so stagnant so often. And not to just make this all about the 2019 Raptors, (laughs) but when their (laughs) offense looked stagnant, it was Kawhi Leonard. And Kawhi is also someone who comes from the school of Kobe. And what Kobe really relied on is he he operated out the mid post. That was a large part of his game. That is Kawhi Leonard's bread and butter as well. Like they just have different things they can go to when that offense stalls. And it seems like Tatum kind of shrinks away sometimes as opposed to like, drive, get me free throws, attack the basket, draw contact, and don't try to finish so acrobatically that you're dodging the contact on your way there. What else can you do when your team's offense really struggles? And I guess my last question is like, is that is that what you would point to for the Celtics struggles in the clutch? Or do you think that they just need a point guard? Or do you think it's another issue? Um, I mean, I, I think getting... First of all, like number one is further improvement from guys like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Those guys, 24 and 25 years old, them getting better, them improving like that is step number one, most important, regardless of whatever else is done by the roster. Uh, like like with Tatum, just like one more note on um, his ISO scoring efficiency. This postseason, there were 16 players to attempt over. 50 isolations trying to score. So not when they pass the ball, only trying to score. And Tatum was 15th of 16th in scoring efficiency ahead of Drew Holiday um, behind CJ McCollum. And for what it's worth, Pascal Siakam was fifth uh, <laughs> of those 16 players. Uh, so pretty, pretty good for him. Um, but Pascal like, over everyone yes. except for four people. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so the four were, if you're curious, Jordan Poole, Anthony Edwards, <laughs> Jalen Brunson, Jalen Brown. Uh, so okay. pretty, pretty good company for Pascal Siakam to be fifth 
Um, but uh, like I think with Boston, though, I mean, the 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 offensive struggles are just often so self-imposed, like them just slowing down the yeah. ball, you know, slowing down the offense, not, you know, getting into a set until like 14, 15 seconds left in the shot clock. So, I mean, I think part of that is about them finding uh, a quality point guard, someone better than Marcus Smart or better than Derek White. Um, but even then, like what what is the guy who is the guy out there that fits that role is it a guy making 30 million dollars or is it somebody that's just a little bit better than Pete and Pritchard off the bench like you kind of like they imagined Dennis Schroeder being for that team so I think for them they have a, a 17 million dollar trade exemption if they can use that on a player of quality either a wing or a guard that would make sense uh, using some of their salaries to flip whether it's just Daniel Tice or whether it's packaging Tice with a Marcus smart or with a Derek white for an upgrade. I think that'd be number two. And then, you know, just adding more depth on the roster because it just felt at times they were just running out of quality bodies to put on the court. It'll be interesting. Like I I know that you talked about this, uh, about like sort of their window of contention really being a couple of years from now and that they're ahead of schedule by making it to the Mm -hmm. finals this year, but also looking at it, like Al Horford plays such an integral role. Marcus Smart also plays such an integral role as the two older guys, not putting Marcus Smart in the same age range as Al Horford there, (laughs) but like, are they a part of the law? Like it does Mark is Marcus Smart a part of this big three moving forward. Is he, does he have to be there or do you have to sort of give him up for spare parts, including a point guard who can kind of make it work? What does that sort of look like to you? If you're looking at the Celtics in two years, I don't know. Is he still on the team? I don't know. I mean, it's, I really don't know because he's Marcus smart is so important. Uh, yeah. And in, in the sense that he's kind of that, that connective, you know, coach, you know, on the court. He's like that, that middle linebacker, you know, who's calling out defense, communicating. He's an energizer and all of that good stuff. And he's like if Kyle Lowry wasn't an all-star. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He, he was sort of like that. That's someone like people compared smart to when he entered the NBA. The difference is yeah. Kyle Lowry reached amazing heights as an offensive player and as a shooter and as a creator. Marcus Smart hasn't. And so some of the limitations that he has on, in his game, you can you can say he shot 40 plus percent in the finals. And that's a good thing, but teams don't respect or defend him like that, which can clog your clog your offense. He also is a fine passer. He's like, okay, playmaker, but he's not a great playmaker. He's not breaking down the defense. Is Tatum a better playmaker than I him? think he is. Yeah. Okay. I, I, think, I think Tatum's a better playmaker. And like, I think smart and white, they did the, they did what they could do, but they're not breaking down our defense, running a high pick and roll. And, finding the open man in a way like some of the best point guards do. So like for Boston, maybe, maybe you move smart, but I wouldn't guarantee that he's the guy you move. Maybe it's actually Derek white instead because smart brings those intangible qualities that are so important. Unless I mean, like that's part of the conversations that happen internally. I'm sure, you know, right. Brad Stevens will talk to, you know, email Doka and the players on that roster and, and say, Hey, you know, we have this opportunity to get this guy. You know, like, let's just say it's Bradley Beal. Let's just say Bradley Beal wants to go to Boston. You would have to give up either Horford or smart or white with Tice to make something like that happen. So I just look forward to seeing what type of opportunities become available for Boston because because this could go a lot of different ways for them in the next two year or two as they as those young guys grow into their primes. Right. And and Al Horford kind of ages out as someone who is so incredibly important to what they do. All right, so let's pivot a little bit. I mean, we can talk a little bit about the older guys and the younger guys with the Golden State Warriors, but I think that that's kind of been overdone. And it'll be interesting to see what what they do as well. I kind of want to pivot to talk about the best team ever, which is the Toronto Raptors. (laughs) (laughs) There's been a lot, a lot of talk about OG Ananobi and whether he's happy with his role with the Toronto Raptors or if he wants a bigger one. Initially, the story came out from Jake Fisher of the Bleacher Report. And he did kind of mention that a lot of the rumblings weren't coming out of OG's camp in that story, but more so possibly from elsewhere in the league. And OG Ananobi, I mentioned it, fantastic perimeter defender. He's incredibly strong. He is like a near 40% three-point shooter. He's shown the ability to create a little offense for himself. Yes, the handle needs to be tighter. He's a little Jalen Brown-esque with it. He's the Raptors' best post player. He's shown just, 
so many skills and is incredible. Like he's just the perfect player that you can slot into any team. So yes, it makes sense that every team would want him. And there are a lot of teams that just need to be better defensively. The Utah Jazz would love to have a guy like him. The Portland Jailblazers, the Brooklyn Nets, there are tons of teams. Do you think that the Raptors probably move OG Ananobi? And, and if he's not happy with his role here in Toronto, was probably the tertiary guy uh, at the start of the season, was the primary guy for a stretch. What do you think he expects his role to be? If we're believing these reports that he's not happy with his role, what do you think he thinks his role can be? And what do you think he kind of caps out as? Uh, I mean, with OG, uh, I've I've heard some of the rumblings about like the unhappiness with role, but like it's, it's hard to get a, a read on that type of stuff because like it it's th- those those types of rumors and rumblings. Sometimes it can be from teams that want to shake a player loose, right? That that know that a player is available, and it's like ah, we're gonna try to shake him loose even more from here to create some dysfunction there, try to increase the chances of a trade. So I don't know like how much of it is that. I do know with Toronto, like one of the things I heard during the season is with so many different mouths to feed and so many different guys that there was like a little bit of like uncertainty and role and responsibility with the kind of the inconsistency throughout the year. But I don't my impression wasn't that it was like some big deal Um, with that said, if you're OG and an OB, you're 24 years old, you are, you know, in year two of this contract, you have two more guaranteed years and then a player option for the 24 25 season. If you're OG and an OB, I would totally understand the desire after some of the flashes that you mentioned that he showed during the season and think to myself, am I really going to get that opportunity here playing with Scotty Barnes, who was blossoming into a star and behind Pascal Siakam, who has continued to get better, who played the best basketball of his career? Am I really going to get those chances? Never mind Gary Trent Jr who is really great as an isolation scorer, a knockdown shooter. If you're OG, maybe you feel like you're slotted into your three and D role with just like a little bit of a, a tease of what you can do with the ball in your hands. So I would perfectly understand if OG or people in his camp wanted him to be in a new situation. With that said, um, for Toronto, I also say, think there's logic to them moving OG for all the same reasons. I love OG. OG is one of my favorite players. I love him so much, but for the Raptors, they do have Siakam. They do have Scotty Barnes. There is a little bit of like overlap there. Never mind Precious Achua, for that matter, who was who was great last season too. So I think for Toronto, if you're able to flip him for a high lottery pick and maybe a little bit of other goodies too, why would you not at least explore that possibility? Because if it's Portland at number seven, or whether it's a team like Sacramento at number four, or whether it's like even a team like Dallas that is willing to give a bunch of picks in the future. Uh, or maybe you maybe there's a three way trade where you're getting a first um, like to me, I think there's logic for the Raptors front office to move OG and an Obi. And I tend to think about these things through the through the lens of the team that actually has the leverage here and like OG. It doesn't matter if he's unhappy. It really doesn't. What matters is what the Raptors front office wants to do and what makes sense to them. And I think there's a lot of logic in trading OG and an OB because I'm not trading Scotty. I'm not trading Pascal. OG's the guy where I look at him as well. What can we turn him into to have another star in this team that can actually lead the franchise to another championship? Because OG's not that. He's just a great piece of a championship team, but not the guy. I think in the words of Dan Tolzman, you can't find anyone better at number seven than you have with OG and Anobi. And you know what? Maybe. What if, what, <laughs> what if the guy that they have ranked number one is at number seven? What if the Raptors think, what if the Raptors think shade and sharp is going to be the next, you know, star scorer in the NBA? What if that's what they think about sharp, even though everybody else thinks he's this fifth, sixth, I wish seventh I knew best anything. I, I've paid zero. Once the Raptors were the five seed, I was like, yeah, the, who cares the about the draft? Yeah. What is that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like reading absolutely <laughs> everything on every player. But, but, like, but that's, no, but that's like, what I mean, though. Teams care about that? Uh, no, that's fair. That's fair. I, I, I agree with you that OG is someone who is not untouchable on this team. I think that, you know, Scotty, untouchable. Pascal Siakam, in my opinion, untouchable. Gary Trent Jr., I think, is probably the one person that I'd be making calls totally, about. Yeah. Um, it, it would it, if, if people were going off for things, you know what? I would listen to the OG and Anobi conversations and I'd be like, well, well, how about a Gary Trent Jr.? How does that how does that work for your team? But I think that you can, of course, I think the Raptors do their due diligence. And I think answering calls about OG and Anobi makes the most sense. He is not untouchable. But I, I kind of if, if I had to put money on it, 
I would say that he starts the season as a Toronto Raptor and nothing is really done there. I'm not sure. That's where I'd put my money. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I don't know. I don't know. I know. I do know That's teams fair. want him. Teams do want him. And so it's really going to be a matter of the words of Masai Ujiri. I want Messi. I want <laughs> who else did he say? I want Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> I want yeah. Kobe Bryant. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a matter of what, if those teams are willing to give up that type of stuff. And then that, that's the one thing I'll say is I've heard in the context of OG, the Raptors want to trade up. Like they don't want to trade. Yeah. They don't want to trade OG into parts. Like right. they don't, they don't want to trade one into three. They want to trade OG is part of three into one. That's I think their goal ultimately. So maybe that's through the draft. Maybe it's a proven player. I don't know, but we'll see what happens there. Messiah is not the sentimental type, right? This is a man no. who signed an A and then was like, bye a day later. Peace out. <laughs> like, Peace out. Not this, not, yeah, exactly. Not the sentimental type. Raptor fans know from hard, still, still bleeding a little bit over to Marta Rosen. Um, and we, we talked about Pascal Siakam. I kind of mentioned that he would our probably really be bleeding. someone. Our hearts bleeding with DeRozan still after winning the championship. There, it was for the best I don't for know him if you know this, too. but but can I can I just say? And I thought this was the craziest thing. I don't know if you know this. When the Bulls were at their peak this season, which also guys, they were like game winning shots against the Pacers and the Wizards. What were we doing <laughs> even then? What were we doing even then? But when the Bulls were at their peak um, at the beginning of the year, people were like, if Demar Derozan wins a championship, let's throw a parade here in Toronto. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that is the wildest thing I ever heard. So yeah, I think hearts are still that as much as like Kawhi, they love Kawhi Leonard. We all love Kawhi Leonard here and the championship and everything that 2019 brought. People really love DeMar DeRozan in this city. So there might've been a parade in Toronto if the Bulls had won a championship. Understandably so. I mean, he was so important <laughs> really? to the franchise. I, I yeah, he is. It. Yes, he, yeah. he's Mr. Toronto. Uh, I don't think anyone's really embraced this team and this city in the way that DeMar DeRozan has. All right. Uh, next guy, Pascal Siakam. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Pascal Siakam because the timeline's kind of been um, there are just there are people who believe that he's just as good as Christian Wood. And if you replaced Christian Wood with Siakam on the Raptors, the Raptors would still be the five seed and <laughs> the record would be untouched and the Houston Rockets would still be the Houston Rockets. Now, I don't believe that to be true, but I wanted to get um, your opinion because apparently I'm just a biased Raptors fan. So let me get someone who is on the outside and covers the league as a whole. <laughs> Can you speak to what Pascal Siakam brings and does that may be the average fan or the casual who doesn't necessarily watch the Toronto Raptors. Um, can you kind of speak to the value of Pascal Siakam and, and how good of a player he truly is? I mean, Pascal Siakam is the type of player who makes, makes you feel like the team cares with his hustle and heart and effort, you know, leading and, and minutes per game this season and continuing to bring it all the time. He's the type of player who, who will happily embrace and excel doing whatever is asked of him on the team, whether it's running point, facilitating, whether it's screening and rolling down to the basket or spot up shooting or cutting or being an end of end of clock isolation score. Pascal Siakam is that do it all player on both ends of the court with intangibles. And that's why he rightfully was an all NBA guy. Uh, and that's why like at 28 years old, despite like it felt like for a short time, he plateaued why a guy like him was able to break that plateau and get better from it. So I think Pascal Siakam is, is that type of player. Whereas like the Christian Wood stuff, I like Christian Wood, Christian Wood. I like him. I like him a lot. He can shoot threes. He can attack off the dribble. He can throw down lob dunks. That dude is not a, a stabilizer. He's not an energizer. He is the opposite of that. Christian Wood is oftentimes a slug on defense, a late lazy and someone who hurts your team on defense. And that's where for Dallas that needs to change. Like that needs to be better or else they will never reach their potential. Whereas with Pascal Siakam, I think he's one of those guys who always helps you reach your potential. So big, big difference there between those two guys. <laughs> yeah. One guy who's what on his sixth team in like five years. <laughs> yeah. um, a tough all right. I, I hope, I really hope it works out. For I, I, I enjoy I Christian Wood. He's I do. A, I enjoy Christian Wood as a player. A good player. But like, he's not Pascal Siakam, guys. What are we? I'm not even, I'm not going to get into it. We don't have time for a rent. We're, we're rushing here. All right. So the <laughs> Raptors, they were the five seed this year. And I think that that surprised a lot of people considering where they were last year. Just talking about it. I cared about the lottery and the draft last year. And I was watching tape last year because the Raptors were in the lottery. Um, but the five seed and really 
the five seed with a lot of injuries and, and guys in and out of the lineup. And Siakam was absolutely superb in the second half of the season. Fred Van Vliet, superb in the first half of the season before getting injured. Hopefully with some rest, hopefully with some time off, maybe some changes made to the team as well. What do you think they look like next year? But more so, the question is, what do they need to do to get themselves to the same level that Boston is at? Because I kind of look at the Raptors this year and I said, Boston is what they should aspire to be. They play defense in a very similar way. They're switch-heavy defense. And the Raptors' defense was awful for a good chunk of the year because Nick Nurse is like, I'm not going to abandon the principles because you guys don't know how to do this. You guys are going to learn how to figure this out. And they did over time and it made sense. And of course, working a rookie into this switch-heavy defense is going to be a problem for a good chunk of it and guys in and out of the lineup. But Boston is kind of what they aspire to be. They're even more thin than them, though. So my question to you is, what do the Raptors need to do to get to that level? I uh, trade OG and an Obi for a star. <laughs> that, that might be the first one. Um, but, no, OG. But, 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 uh, <laughs> but, but ultimately, though... Um, Being a contender is not even yeah, important. It's yeah, not yeah, worth it's it, guys. Like, no, I no, changed no, my mind. Just keep OG. <laughs> but I, I think for them... Um, I mean, like they're in such a good spot right now, but, but what are they, what's missing? They need, they need a, a center better than Kim Birch and Chris Boucher. They need someone who can, you know, provide size and those matchups against an Embiid or a Jokic. Um, and that's important. They also need like, that a perimeter. Yeah, absolutely. They, they need that perimeter presence. Fred Van Vliet, as much as I love him, he's not your number one perimeter guy. He is your number two. He's the guy that you want playing off of a Kawhi Leonard. That's when he's at his best. So I, I think for the Raptors, finding that guy uh, and finding the big, the, the question is going to be, what's the path to getting those players? Is, is it a people mentioned Rudy Gobert for him? Well, if Rudy Gobert is making $40 million. I'm not sure he makes Gobert makes sense to me for a team that is like, we're ready to win a championship. Now the yeah. Raptors are more like, oh, we, we want to be ready to win a championship in 24 or 25. But also they have to abandon so many of their principles to work a guy like Gobert in, right? And the Raptors have said, like, I agree with you. I think they need I think they need a center because you are going to run in. We saw it with the Celtics. Yes, they're the switchiest defense and they excelled at that, but they could play the drop and they did that. And we saw them do that against the Warriors, right? Like you need a drop big. You need someone who can, you need a versatile defense. You can't just play one style. That's why the 2019 Raptors were as fantastic as they were. They could put two bigs up there or they can play small. You need the ability to do that. So I agree. But Tell me if you think I'm correct in that probably a backup big as opposed to someone who can necessarily like start as someone who really wanted Jakoperdel on the team. And I will abandon everything I'm saying if they can get Jakoperdel. Um, do you agree that it's probably like a backup center that they need more so than someone who starts so that they're not abandoning, abandoning their entire team philosophy with what they're doing? Um, I don't know. I, I think I think with Toronto. Gobert, like we, we, you mentioned Gobert, how what he was like in Utah, but in in Toronto, would Gobert be asked to switch more often? And then you have instead of Donovan Mitchell and Joe Ingles and you know Jordan Clarkson from the past Jazz teams on the back line to help Gobert on a switch on the perimeter. Instead, it's you know six foot nine Scotty Barnes, and it's. You know, it's Thad Young. It's, you know, whoever it might be, because it's like a t it's precious, precious Achua back there. It's right. it'd be so much different with Gobert on the perimeter in Toronto versus Gobert on the perimeter in Utah. And that, that's, that's where true. like I think and I'm not sure he makes sense, though, because for the financial yeah. reasons, 40 million dollars. Like, that's a lot of money for a team that isn't there yet to win a championship. But it's, you know, inching towards that. Maybe Gobert doesn't make sense. Maybe it's more like a Miles Turner because he can space the floor on offense for this team as well, and then also provide some of that rim protection too. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I'm just I'm I'm fascinated by Gobert in a new situation because I'm I'm convinced we're going to see the best version of Gobert, which is weird to say considering he's already won three Defensive Player of the Year awards. But I, I think in a, the team that trades for him, if a team trades for him, they're going to be a team. Like imagine Gobert in the Robert Williams role for Boston. Just imagine him in that role where he's roaming off ball, able to help able to, you know, or be the primary guy in certain lineups. Like he doing, like he is doing his traditional thing. I just imagine that. And I'm like, damn, like that's, you'd see the best Gobert you've ever seen ever. And so I don't know. I, I I'm high on Rudy Gobert, very high on Rudy Gobert. I love Gobert. Yeah. 
I but I I've been I was like really big on the idea of Gobert with Luca in that Dallas situation. I just like the pick and rolls would like go. I I you know what I want Gobert to be featured a little bit more on an offense is what I'm thinking. And so like I'm kind of looking I'm kind of looking at it both ways. But before we go before we go I wanted to do a Canadian quiz. Oh boy! So, Quizzes, my weak spot. So let's throw the Frenchman. <laughs> oh no. Let's throw the Frenchman away. Enough Gobert talk, and let's <laughs> let's do <laughs> let's do the Canadian quiz. Okay. Oh boy. So I was gonna hit you with some trivia. Oh Actually, God. you know what? Let's start off with the trivia. <laughs> oh no! Andrew Wiggins just won an NBA championship as a Canadian. How many other Canadians have won? An NBA championship. Oh, God. It's, uh, four. <laughs> Is that your final answer? That's my final answer. Four. Okay, I'll tell you if you're right or wrong at the end of our quiz. Oh, All right, so now we're going to do enough basketball. Enough basketball. We don't care about that over here. It might actually be one. Is it? Could it just be Tristan Thompson? I have no idea. Well, we'll stick with four. <laughs> stick with four? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like that answer. Just four. <laughs> All right. So my my first question to you, outside of the trivia, is uh, I guess this is Canadian trivia, trivia, but it is no longer basketball related, except for a final question here. So number one, what is a loony? That's <laughs> a it's a center on the Golden State Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, this is a basketball related question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's my answer. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> All right, so a loony is a gold coin. Uh-huh. It is um, a dollar. It is our dollar coin. So mm. we don't have dollar bills. We have loonies. Um, now that you know what a loony is, do you know what a toonie is? It must be two. It's a two dollar yeah. coin. <laughs> yeah. So that that's that's our change here. We've got loonies and we got toonies. All right. I can use um, context clues. That, that's that's that context clues help. <laughs> what is a toque? I have no idea. No. <laughs> if you can take a guess, uh, a toque. <laughs> I, I don't know. I do not know. Is it Devin so, O'Connor is would first? not survive it, in Canada. No, I would not. Is it another? <laughs> I've only been to Canada twice. Uh, Tor- I guess Toronto, you did not uh, need a toque when you came. Did you come in the summer months? I came in 2011. I organized a trip with my friends. We went for New Year's 11 into 12 and went to Montreal. You probably had a toque on. Uh, I had jacket. Uh, no, it is a beanie. It is a beanie. A toque is a, bo- okay, a beanie. A okay, okay. Uh, I definitely had a toque. And non-basketball related, what is a double double? Huh. It's funny. Like word association, my my brain goes straight to double double at In and Out, like the burgers at In and Out. Okay. In California on the West Coast. Um, a double double. Um. Is, is it food related? Is it? Yeah. It is food related. Hmm. Something with uh, beer. Close. It is. Um, it is coffee ah. with two creams and two sugars. So if you went and you asked for a double double, they'd give you a coffee with two creams and two sugars. And, and that's a Canadian thing. I'm not a coffee drinker. You know that? I, I don't. I don't I do love coffee. coffee. I, I love. I don't like. I don't like a double double. It's too sweet. It's too sweet for mm. me. And I'm, I'm not a fan of cream. But uh, that that is. I live off of coffee. Uh, can't wait to go have a cup. <laughs> All right. So this is okay. So this I just learned myself. And guys, I googled this. This is real. <laughs> oh god! Um, if you just learned it, I'm not looking. Oh forward wait, to I just answer. gave it up. I just uh, gave up the answer. I'm not good I, at this. I, I missed it. I missed it. <laughs> I missed the answer. All right. So I haven't really. Okay. True or false? Is it illegal to apologize to say sorry? Canadians are known to say sorry. Is it illegal to apologize in a Canadian court? I mean, it must be because you're asking the question. So true. <laughs> I, yeah, it is. It's illegal. It's really? a, and there's there's a reason for it that actually makes sense because apologizing, you might be apologizing for the way that someone feels as opposed to admitting guilt mm. or culpability. So they don't want to create any of that confusion to, there. But it is illegal to apologize in Canadian courts, which know, is something I learned. One of my... One of my life takes is that people say sorry too much, you know, you know, like when you like, you're like, you know, walking and like, you might like kind of cross into each other and you're like, sorry, sorry, sorry. So it, it, it happens. You don't need to say sorry. You don't need to apologize for that. If you slightly, you I'm know, Canadian. You know. I can't, it would feel, I might run back and apologize to someone <laughs> just in case they didn't hear me say it loud enough the first time. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> it's, like, it's like if you're getting if you're getting up from your seat at like a baseball game and you're shimmying by you don't need to say sorry it's okay you're, you're in the middle we understand like everybody has to go to the bathroom or get food it's it's okay no apologies necessary that's fair that's fair <laughs> same thing on an airplane <laughs> it's okay <laughs> who is the groat the groat the g-r-o-a-t if you will the groat i mean this is the most important question on here the groat Think about a goat, and there's an uh, there's an r in there in case that helps. The groat. Who like so? Who this is a person? This is a person. You're familiar with this person. This is a basketball related question. This is an like NBA. Okay, the groat. In that case, it must be if it's related to goat. It's gotta be. It's gotta be Kyle Lowry. There we go. Oh my gosh. I was about to end the interview right here, right now. was DeRozan or Lowry. It's going to be Lowry, the groat. Kyle Lowry, the groat, greatest Raptor of all time. (laughs) And now back to the first question I asked you, how many Canadians won an NBA title? You answered four. I'm going to tell you that you were wrong. Mm. Uh, And it is double that. It's it's double. How many can you name now that you know that they're eight? How many can I name? <laughs> so you said Justin Thompson. We said Andrew Wiggins. We got two. Yeah, so we got two. And it's eight. Um, Rick Fox. There we go. Um, um, Nash never won one. Um, uh, let's see. We talked Canadian. a lot about this championship team because I love talking about this championship team. They're my favorite championship team to ever talk about. <laughs> Who else was on that team that was Canadian? Um, Boucher. There we go. Number four. That's right. Um, Who else? Was there anybody else in that roster? I don't think there was any other. No, that's it. That's it. That's it. So Boucher Boucher was on that team. Yeah. Um, Are there any, are there any other current NBA players? Yes, there are. There's Um, there's, there's one more current NBA player. Think Um, about, um, think about some dynasties. I don't know if this team would, I I'm going to call them a dynasty. I hate the sort of issues on dynasty. Think about some of the dynasties, right? So the warriors, they had Boucher, I guess, technically. And and Andrew Wiggins. What are some of the other ones of this sort of. Was it like a, is it a good player? Or is it, is it someone like that's on the back end of a bench? I don't think. Uh, no, I'm not the back teams. end of the bench, but a bench player. Maybe the back. I don't know. I can't think of another current NBA player, to be honest with you. I'll give you is a it, clue. It, mm, okay. Can you give me a clue? Plays for the Detroit Pistons. Currently for the Pistons. Unless I'm wrong about that. Um, oh. Corey Joseph. Yeah, there we go. There we go. San Antonio Spurs, Corey Joseph, okay. Rick Fox, yep, yep. and then uh, a Miami from from the Heatles era, Joel Anthony. Ah, Joel Anthony's Canadian. I didn't know. Joel Anthony know. is Canadian. I had no idea. Okay, Corey Joseph. Uh, and then we've got Bill Wennington from the Bulls. Oh, and Bill someone Wennington's who I'm Canadian not familiar Bill Wennington. He's the yeah. announcer for that team now. Uh, someone I'm not familiar with, Mike Smrek. Huh. On the Lakers. In the 80s. Bill Before Wellington. either one of us were alive. So. But there we go. So those are the Canadians that have won an NBA championship. <laughs> Andrew Wiggins is in great company. Oh, Thank you amazing. so much for joining me today. This is a lot of fun. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is a good time. And thank you to all my lovelies listening. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Catch us next week. <laughs>